I know. <laughs> I had a boss that was in love with Seuss Linux, and if I ever have to use Yast again, I think I might slip my wrists. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <Jeez>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Ruby developer, are you sick and tired of working on crappy old legacy code bases? There's got to be a better way. If you want to get a better job, here's what you can do. Find a technology that's really in demand, build a side project using that technology, and then use that side project as experience to get your next better job. I've done this myself several times, it definitely works. What I think is a really good technology to learn right now is Angular. Angular is really in demand right now and it's not going away anytime soon. I have a free guide to getting started with Angular and Rails at angularonrails.com slash rr. Good luck and enjoy this episode of Ruby Rogues. Hey everybody and welcome to the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Jerome Hardaway. Hey everybody. Dave Kimura. Hello. Brian Hogan. Hi all. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out for our free uh, Ruby Summit. Go check it out at rubydevsummit.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Mark Locklear. Mark, do you want to say hi? Hey, folks. Glad to be here and joining you from Asheville, North Carolina. Now, I don't know if we've had you on the show before. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Let us know who you are, what you do. Sure. So, uh, again, my name is Mark. So, I uh, currently work for extension.org. We're a... um, we're a sort of USDA-funded, government-funded organization. We serve the Cooperative Extension Service. A lot of people don't know what the Cooperative Extension Service is, but we've had there's a there's usually a Cooperative Extension branch in every county in every state. If you're familiar, a lot of people are familiar with 4-H, and if you know about your your 4-H youth group, mm-hmm. that that's where a lot of people know the Cooperative Extension Service from. So we're sort of a national presence. Cooperative Extension Service is, is very fragmented. As I said, there's generally uh, extension branches in each uh, county in each state. And so we're sort of a national presence for the Cooperative Extension Service. We've got a handful of websites that we maintain that are uh, mostly Ruby and Rails based, although we've got some WordPress and Drupal uh, sprinkled in. So I've been with uh, extension.org for about three years. Prior to that, I was uh, staff at a community college, mostly doing Rails stuff and just sort of general IT things. Uh, I'm also an adjunct instructor and and am still an adjunct instructor uh, with that same community college. And then uh, sort of the 10 years prior to that, I was doing mostly quality assurance and testing work and just sort of moved into uh, development work in the last maybe seven, eight, eight years. Gotcha. And you authored a book, Learning Rails 5? Yeah. So, it, you know, it was actually an update on an existing book. So the, the previous version of the book was Learning Rails 3. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm an adjunct instructor. So I had used that book, Learning Rails 3, to teach a regular four-credit class at uh, at the community college that I, I was at. And so this was in, uh, this has been maybe four years ago or so, but, uh, you know, the, Rails was at Rails 4 at the time, and I was teaching Rails 3. And so after about two semesters of teaching the book, I knew it really well. And I said, you know, I could really, like, I, you know, I, I feel like I could update this book to Rails 5. We were, um, this was a sort of in the fall of 2003, 2004. And so Rails 5 uh, was, uh, was sort of in, in edge at the time and was about to come out that, that next spring. And so I contacted the developers uh, or the original authors and O'Reilly and just said, hey, I'd, I'd like to up, update the book. So uh, 
a good part of the content stayed the the same, but of course I just updated a lot of the syntax and, and things, and then uh, rewrote a couple of the chapters, the authentication chapter. I, I rewrote that from scratch. So I mean, there's Rails tutorial. There, I mean, there are a bunch of books out there on Rails. What what's unique about your book? Is your approach different, or is there different um, content? Sure. Yeah, I you know I don't think my approach is that much different. One of the sort of you know, one of the things I think about when teaching is there's all kinds of learners out there. Folks learn in all kinds of, of di- different ways. Some are visual, some are more kinesthetic learners. So just from a general standpoint, I think um, there's nothing necessarily u- unique about this book. It's just a, a sort of a different way of approaching it. The first couple of chapters focuses on sort of hand coding rather than using scaffolding. We're using generators for controllers and models. Specifically, it sort of starts out that way. And then after, I think, chapter uh, four or five, we start, we get into scaffolding. So I, I think it's just another option for students. It, it, it approaches Rails from a standpoint of no, really no development uh, skill at all. I mean, they're, they're sort of, uh, I guess, the only uh, assumption would be that you know some HTML and just some basic things like, you know, uh, for loops and conditional statements. But other than that, there's not a big expectation of, of having a lot of, of technical knowledge up front. Gotcha. So one of the things that I periodically hear people complain about is that uh, Rails has gotten more complicated. Do you feel like it has? And do you feel like, and, and I'd like to hear from the rest of the panel on this too, because we all do Rails to some degree. It, it's gotten more complicated. So does that mean it's harder to learn or, you know, do you just approach it the same way and then talk about all the stuff they've added? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. So that was one of the challenges with this book. The The original version of the book, Learning Rails 3, of course, didn't have any API stuff in it, didn't have any action cable, anything like that. And that was one of the decisions up front that I decided to make was to not add those things. Now we're looking, I'm working with one of the co-authors now, and we're looking at adding chapters on those those things. But uh, to, to to your original question that, that of is, is Rails hard to learn now. I, I don't think so because, you know, it's been pretty backward compatible over the years. You know, the sort of original framework, and I use that word loosely, but the sort of way to, to do things from a command line standpoint, those things are all still there. And the basic structure of a Rails app, you know, it looks very much like it did five or 10 years ago. So in in, in, in my opinion, I'd say no, I, I don't think it's more more difficult to learn. And I think they started standardizing a lot of things, you know, like if you want to do this, here is your approach. I don't think, you know, before it was very open and uh, subjective to however you wanted to complete a task. And now with a lot more of their convention over configuration, I think, you know, a lot of it's taken care of for you. But with that, they've also added a lot of new features. Now, now with uh, in Rails 4, you had the introduction of Active Job, which you know is a extra piece that's just been added and baked into the Rails core. However, if that was not there, then you would have your own implementation and stuff. So I think even though it has gotten more complicated over the past few years, and then with Rails 5, you have Action Cable, and then Rails 5.1 was added with a Webpack, and you have Rails Secrets and some other stuff. But I think once someone gets accustomed to it, it's almost second nature, and there's a lot of less guesswork. The tutorials out there will all kind of 
mesh and match, you know, kind of what you're trying to do because now we have more of a standardization. So even though it could be a little more complicated than it was in the Rails 3 days, I think with the convention over configuration, as well as the support out there from the community, it's in a much better direction. I agree with you, Dave. This is going to mark my ninth year of teaching Rails in some capacity. And it's gotten harder. I'm not, I'm, it's gotten harder simply because web development has gotten more complex. If you look at what the state, if you look at the statements from, from, from DHH, Rails, he, he'll maintain up and down that Rails is not for beginners. Rails is a toolkit for professional web developers to get stuff done. And so that's why they're baking in all these things like jobs and they're baking in the WebSocket stuff and they're baking in the, the, the JavaScript stuff now uh, because you want to meet the needs of the modern web developer. I disagree that it's not for beginners. I think it's a great a great way for people to learn how to build web to database applications and, uh, and all that. But I've seen one of the one of the neat things that you get that you get when you when you teach this in a, uh, in a setting with where you can get feedback from from people in real time is that you can track that over over time and you can start mm-hmm. seeing what are the places that people have pain points with and there are certain things that are that that thankfully have have stayed exactly the same there are other things that are just a little more confusing than they used to be and so it's not this it's not this it's not so much that it's um now let me give you a great example it's not so much that it's uh, harder to learn it's just a little harder to get started with when they brought in the the asset pipeline all of a sudden you had additional dependencies you needed on some on some environments and some machines you need to get you know node installed as well as ruby installed mm-hmm. and and if you're already a developer doing those things you don't notice that but take a new student with a blank completely blank windows machine and say let's make a rails application Two hours later, once you've finished installing everything, <laughs> you can get started. And that's that's sort of the parts that are that are kind of weird. It's gotten a little bit more and more little more and more difficult on that end. But the fact is that what is Rails, right? If you if you go through one of these books and you stay uh, completely on the pathway, like using your using your fixtures and uh, using all the built-in components with Rails, the question I have always had as a teacher is did I prepare myself or did I prepare my students to get their first Rails job when all of a sudden they run smack dab into a code base full of Factory Girl and RSpec and a bunch of other things that are not off the of Rails core? Because that's the thing that makes Rails, I think, hard to learn is when, uh, when, a, when, when, a, when a beginner comes in and says, oh, I'm doing this thing. And someone will say, oh, you should use RSpec. And then they'll say, oh, what's RSpec? And they look on that. Oh, you should use Cucumber. What's that? And you look into that. And all of a sudden, there's these, 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 all these additional things. Um, and I've seen some starter projects out there with you know, 20, 30 different gems that are automatically configured to run, which is great for productivity. But one of the things that's happened in the last uh, you know, 10 years of Rails is that it's gotten, it's gotten a little different. It's gotten a little, it's gotten, there's lots of different ways you can do a Rails application. Yeah, it's, that's, it's that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, essentially, you say that, Brian. I wonder if it's, I mean, certainly can be more difficult for students, but it's more difficult for an instructor, you know, approaching it from an instructor standpoint. Yeah. The options have gotten so, there's so many more options there. And the decision, just as you said, like, what is my goal for these students? Is my goal to get them a Rails job, which is, you know, sort of a tall task, and at least in a college setting, in a typical 16 week class where we're meeting once or twice twice a week you know is that the goal is the goal is the goal just to hey i want to expose you to web development 
and software development, which is sort of how I approach things. I, I, I like to say, and I teach a Java per programming class, which is sort of an intro Java class, that I'm not here to teach you Java as much as I am here to teach you software development. And oh, by the way, we're going to use Java to do that. So lots of times I approach Rails from that way, is that I'm here to teach you web development. And yeah, we're, we're going to use Rails to, to do it. But my goal is to teach sort of concepts and ideas that are going to be broad enough that they're going to apply to whatever framework or whatever language uh, you, you, you choose to work in. Exactly. That's, that's, an, awesome, that's an awesome approach. So what, what are kind of the core fundamental things then that people need to know in order to write Rails apps? Because it sounds like, you know, you need models and views and controllers and all, all of those kinds of things. But yeah, a lot of people really do get down into the weeds. Well, you really do need how to write, know how to write tests. You do need to know how to set up a, a job queue. You do need to know how to write CoffeeScript so that your JavaScript does the right thing in the right place at the right time. Yeah, are there things that you feel like every Rails developer really does need to know? Or is it just, okay, understand the basic structure and then move on? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of approach it from a standpoint, and I'm just looking through the table of contents of the, the, the book now. Again, we have a, I sort of structure around a 16-week course. You know, we spend, and just as an example, we spend a week, we spend a week on testing. And I just use the typical, you know, I use our spec and those, those things, but we don't dive real deep into to that. I try and focus on more the model view controller paradigm so they they understand that. And then just the basics of CRUD. I mean, I, I really focus on that CRUD piece too, that they sort of understand those things. And those, and again, in my mind, those things are, are things that are transferable across whatever framework they choose to work in. You know, I, I want to hit testing. I want to hit sessions and cookies. I want to hit user authentication. Those are all things we're going to touch. So in my mind, they need to have some understanding of what those concepts are in a general way. But, you know, again, and whether it's, again, I think whether it's a 10-week boot camp or whether it's a 16-week college course, you have to make some decisions up front about how deep we're going to dive and how deep we're going to dig into certain concepts. And, and to me, a lot of the more basic stuff, again, the things centered around CRUD, and, you know, controllers, model view controller things are what I focus on more. And then I just sort of try and touch the, you know, just touch on these other concepts that, again, they're going to run into regardless of what framework they get into. But we're, we're probably not going to dig really deep in, into, in, in, into those things. Right. You have to and I assume you kind of have to pick and choose how deep you're going to go in any one area, because if you throw too many things at, at your your students, they're just going to be overwhelmed and then they're going to kind of do it. with They're going to do it by rote as opposed to critical thinking. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, you really can. Right. And that's that's the danger. And, and you know, yeah, that this idea of overwhelming students. And and again, I think the boot the boot camp model as opposed to a 16 week course i think you think about in a college setting these kids have other classes they're in they may be taking you know uh they may be taking a math class and it could be some higher level math they could be taking other per, per programming classes at, at the same time so in that setting again my focus is more that i want to introduce them to the framework and introduce them to the concepts in a general way because uh, some of these students may not even be computer science or uh you know at a community college we call our program web uh, web technologies they may not even be web technologies students so in that setting uh it's 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 
probably more of a you know a broad stroke as opposed to in a boot camp setting you know again that at least the sales pitch for many boot camps is that hey we're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna get you a job in eight ten or 16 weeks so i think it can be a very different approach and, and let me say about the students the commitment that they make the commitment in a, a boot camp generally you think is going to be much, much more than what it is in, in maybe a college setting for many students. Certainly some college students will dive deep into it. And they may spend 10, 20, 30 hours a week in Rails or in whatever software you're, you're learning, but it very well may be you know, only five to 10 hours per, per week. Whereas in a, a boot camp, they, they're doing their eight hours you know, at maybe on site, and they may be doing another two or three hours at night once they, they go home. So I think those are two, two, two very different ways to approach it. Yeah, to, 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 to back that up, the, the data that I had from the online classes and the hybrid uh, blended learning classes that I taught, I would say 80% of the students didn't begin the week's homework until five or six hours before the due date anyway. So yep, even though yep. they had the they had the time uh, on the calendar, they didn't necessarily have the entire week to work on the content for my courses. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Jerome can speak to this too. You know, Vetsu Code is, is very much more on the boot camp side. And a lot of these folks are maybe recently separated from the military. So this is what they're focusing on. Like 24 7, they're, they're learning, you know, they're, they're into software development and coding with a goal of, you know, in two, two or three months that, that they want to be interviewing for, for a job. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a uh, that is a normal practice. So you have to do a deeper dive, not just like it's not just concepts that you have to focus on. You also have to focus on what the employers or HR managers are looking for as well. You know, and something that Scott Hanselman he shared with our cohort last uh, last week. Uh, we focus on having them do uh, so much work and so much uh, algorithmic projects and things of that nature that you know it minimizes their chances of having a whiteboard. It was very funny. He's like, your goal should be to, you know, do as much work you can on the front end uh, forward to avoid whiteboarding as much as possible. And that's like a, that's a very, now that's baked into the curriculum, but it's also, you know, you have to know these type of things. Like you have, you have to know a lot about testing and you have to know a lot about this subject or about how architecture and data structures, things of that nature, uh, as opposed to just, you know, broad concepts and how algorithms are, uh, work in regards to link listing, things of that nature. So it's, uh, I think it, it depends on the approach or what is the purpose of the education is I think what everybody is agreeing on, right? Yeah. One thing I think is interesting in, in this conversation is that we came in to talk about learning rails and then we've been talking about teaching rails. Is there an approach that students should be taking or, you know, people out there who are maybe doing self-teaching or even if they're working at a boot camp, things that they can do to enhance their experience as they learn Rails? I'd love to hear from everybody else. I have my own opinions on this, but I'm going to hold off. (laughs) I believe in the uh, kiss, keep it simple, silly uh, methodology. When it comes to Rails, just learn uh, Rails and then... Like what happens, what I've seen at various boot camps and what we actually, one of our problems when we first started our curriculum building was everybody wants to jump on the the hottest technologies, most popular things. So, you know, for instance, you're talking about CoffeeScript and TypeScript, all these other things and the front end technologies when it comes to Rails. 
But the problem is when you're jumping, when you jump too far ahead of more advanced things, like even going as far as like AWS and all this other stuff, you're not really focusing on Rails. So I think one of my biggest things I've seen is just, just keep it simple. Just focus on Rails. Just focus on CRUD apps. Focus on knowing the entirety of the framework. And um, not only focus on Rails, focus more on Ruby. You'd be amazed how many people are Rails developers, but they like never done the things like use Sinatra or, you know, build a Ruby gem. And, you know, these are things that can actually make you a better Rails developer by focusing on the core language as opposed to the framework. So I think that is one thing that uh, a lot of education resources need to get away from before, like, you know, there should be a, most people when they learn Rails, they learn Ruby in conjunction with Rails. I think it should be more about just learning a Ruby standalone and then focusing on, you know, on Rails. I guess a great case study is, I think we had Honey Badger, Honey Badger.io on the show. And one of the things that actually helped one of their clients, uh, CodePen, was that they were using a lot of heavy, they were very heavy Ruby app when they were trying to upgrade from, I think it was like Rails 3 to Rails 5. And that actually made the upgrading of the Rails app really easy because uh, CodePen.io was built so closely um, on, like, so closely with Ruby versus just being really dependent on Rails and what Rails does for um, for the developer. So that's one thing I think that people should, especially across the board, should focus a you know more much more deeper dive on the power of Ruby and what it can do versus just what you know Rails uh, can do for the developer and it would make better uh, better Rails developers. Oh, you are so, you're so dead on with that. I, I can't, I, I'm just sitting here shaking my head uh, over and over again going, yes, yes, this this is exactly, this is exactly it. I, I find it so important, the working with Rails, when you're teaching it and when you're learning it, you feel so, the student feels so motivated because they're building some things, they're building some things and they're, they're making this forward progress. And it's a little more fun uh, than it is to just do some, some simple Ruby stuff. But there are opportunities from if you're if you're the person presenting the material, there are opportunities to kind of drop down into the Ruby and and kind of explain how it works. And conversely, when when you're when you're at a certain level as a learner, start cracking open the Ruby source code and looking at the, looking at things and understanding how things work under the hood. Look under the Rails source code and see exactly how. And you know, look at the helpers. Look how the string is being built. Look how the humanized stuff works. Look how the number to currency stuff works. Look at those. Look at those things and see if you can see if you can reproduce them and write write your own implementations of those as you learn. Um, but for uh, you know, for that because that's that's going to be the wall. That's where I see a lot of people hit the wall. Is they can certainly they can certainly scaffold some stuff up. It's clear that they followed a book or, or a course, but. When I ask them to do something that's a bit of a derivative, they hit a wall, and and it becomes apparent that there's not enough uh, Ruby knowledge there. There's the knowledge of the framework, but not enough Ruby knowledge. So that's yes, yes. Learn, learn the Rubies and the Rails. And to build on that, Brian, you know, I feel the same way. And this is coming from someone who learned Rails and then went back and learned Ruby. All the magic, you know, the quote magic that happens with Rails, I think it's really important to understand and almost demystify this isn't magic. This is just, you know, helpers that are helping you 
get to a end result quicker. But if you don't understand the core concepts, you know, whether it is the scaffolding or the database migrations uh, or even the uh, object relational mapper uh, active record, what's really going on kind of behind the hood, then anything that deviates from your standard practice or what a book might uh, show you how to do in just a general sense, you're not going to be able to accommodate. So with something like device, you know, not understanding what device is doing in the background with the authentication, if you need to deviate from what device has as a standard and override some of the controller actions, then you're going to be at a complete loss and you might even start you know, trying to roll your own authentication or you might try to look at a different gym when that's not really the solution. It's to understand the core concept around authentication and then to see devices implementation and then see what you need to do to override it while it's still maintaining the security that a device provides. I want to hear from Mark a very specific uh, answer. Uh, Mark, what, what, when, you've, when you've taught, what are the strategies that the most successful students that you've, that you've had, what are their strategies for, for, learning, uh, for learning the content, for learning Rails? Sure. So one of the things I do is with my class, and I, I'll be curious to hear if you do this with yours, is they have a final project that they do. And we go back over you know, each and as requirements, like I have very you know, strict requirements for that final project, basically going back and incorporating everything you've learned. So, you know, this app has to have user authentication. This app has to have, you know, sessions and cookies, and you're actually using cookies to to do stuff. But those students who I can tell really throw themselves in, I I give them a general framework. Uh, Asheville, just just a little little plug for Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville is Beer City, USA, so they build a brewery app for their – final app and they 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 add a list of beers and then they can rate the beers based on the uh the alcohol value the the amount of hops it's got all, all these various things but I also give them the option to hey you can come up with your own map as long as it hits all these requirements usually those students who choose to do the, their their own map which may be 20% of the students something like that the students who choose to do their own map are usually the ones that are most successful partially that's because i guess by the end of the class they're more comfortable with the framework so they feel more comfortable sort of stepping outside of the requirements that i've gave them but but those students you can tell are motivated in that they have a specific problem maybe they want to solve or they came to the class to begin with thinking you know i'd like to write an app that would do this thing so certainly those students who incorporate uh, something like that where they're actually building a real app that's going to do real real stuff something that maybe they're passionate about are the most successful. Right on. That's that's in line with with some of the things that I've seen too. I tend to uh, suggest that when it comes to anything, I tend to suggest that the way to really improve your skills to really grasp these concepts is to give yourself lots of time to practice. Mm-hmm. Spend a lot of time building an, you know, if you've built an app, build it again. Even yeah. if it's the same thing, build again. And then build another thing, build something that's similar to that. Okay, you've made a to-do list. Now make an application that lets you capture notes, like make an ever make a very simple Evernote clone, like without tagging or something like that. Right? Try, try, try different things. Re-implement a URL shortener. Those kinds of things. Just keep keep practicing re-implementing existing projects out there uh, in in Rails, simply because you don't have to think about the problem domain. Right? You don't have to understand. The problem domain, if you if you already understand it, you can just focus on practicing the the, the language and, and the coding. Uh, one of the things that I have always seen separate separate the people who uh, do who are the high performers 
in a, in a education setting uh, from the rest is that they're doing a lot more practice. Um, now, sometimes that practice, uh, sometimes they have the ability, they have the, uh, uh, they can put that time to practice in. They, they, they are uh, privileged enough to be able to put that time, that practice time in. Um, but it still uh, becomes a vital part. And towards the end of my time teaching, I, tr- I tried very hard to incorporate as much practice time in the in our face-to-face time as I could because I thought that was actually more important than um, lecture and presentation. It was just giving them that time. Yeah, g- generally all of my – the sort of class time that I have is an hour or, you know, an hour less of lecture. But then we always have an exercise part, which is just basically that. I sort of give them, okay, we're going to build a t- task app. It's going to have a date. It's going to have a, a d- description. It's going to have a title, and we want to sort it by you know we want to capitalize the the first letter of the word of each uh, of each word in the title. I give them a handful of things, and say, okay, go do it. And then I sort of hover around the, the room and help f- folks out. And I give them, I mean, I may give, give them thirty or forty five minutes to do that. And then then I do a lot of pairing too. I'll also incorporate maybe those last fifteen or twenty minutes if somebody's got it nailed and they're they're done. All right, find somebody who's still who's not done and go pair up with that person and, and work, work with them to sort of walk through the various steps. Well, and that's helpful yeah. too, because you're not just making them do the exercise, but you're there to kind of help them get along and get as much out of it as possible with that time. Sure. Yeah. And if, if I could, let me read, I've got the, uh, this is the last paragraph in the foreword of the book. And I think maybe this speaks to a little something that Jerome was saying. So, this is again. This is in the foreword, uh, the final paragraph in the foreword of Learning Rails Five. It says, "Finally, I want to I want to encourage you to learn Rails and assure you that you will benefit from this book, even if you do not go on to become a Rails developer. I can say this with confidence because Rails has become the gold standard for MVC architecture and web." development. In addition to the general MVC structure, Rails also has created a workflow around migrations, DevOps tasks, Rask, Git, and community support. For all of these reasons, even if you do not go on to do great things in Rails, you you will encounter some, if not all, of these challenges in whatever web development platform you choose to work in. By exposing yourself to Rails and its solutions to these challenges, you will learn best practices that can be applied to other frameworks and workflows. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Compose is a fully managed database hosting with extra security, scaling, and performance. Hosted on dedicated SSD servers, you can pick from nine highly available databases, MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis. Compose Enterprise comes with easy scaling, which means you can add additional nodes at any time. It's auto-scaled resources like storage, memory, and IOPS, RESTful APIs, central console to manage all your deployments, and premium support with guaranteed response time and priority ticketing. With Compose Enterprise, you can free up your time to focus on building your app instead of managing your database. Check them out at enterprise.compose.com. And if you try Compose, you'll get a free special edition t-shirt. Hurry, quantities are limited. That's enterprise.compose.com. Cue applause now. Right on. So another thing that I encourage the listeners to do, if you are kind of that lone developer and you are just working on some personal projects, you know, find a project that maybe you are passionate about or maybe not even care much about and get with someone else and get some experience with some peer programming. You know, um, 
deal with and tough through some merge conflicts and really try to uh, see what what it's like working with other developers on the same application because the way you structure your application to sustain multiple developers will change from just being a solo developer. And it's definitely something that is good experience to have. And I think you'll find that your code is ending up much cleaner because you are having to take into account multiple users working around the same code set. That's an interesting question about Git. I'm curious what other uh, what other folks are doing, Brian. If you you include that, we spend. I, I introduced Git relatively early on, maybe the third or fourth week, and then you know, at one point I was going to have them. Hey, we're going to submit all our assignments via Git, but th- there were so many issues, just even with simple sort of push pull requests and things like like that, that I, I do expose them to it, but I, I don't. May uh, I don't include it in the class, maybe as as much as I should. We included Git at the end of our first semester mm-hmm. program courses and because it was it, it we've tried we tried many different ways and we ended up with a lot of a lot of confusion and a lot of just people just doing what they were told following recipes rather than thinking mm-hmm. um because they thought well oh, this is part of rails right or this is part of javascript program i just have to use this git thing and they didn't really understand what it was for and it's a and, th- and that happens when you're new and there's a lot of new material being thrown at you uh, and so we discovered the sweet spot is really to give them a bunch of time to feel how painful work is without it. Um, and because then they can rely on their prior knowledge. They can rely on those learning pathways that already exist. And they can say, oh, yeah, if I use this tool, I'm going to save myself a lot of pain from having to worry about previous revisions or tracking my changes or even keeping track of what I did at the end of the day. So we introduced it. We yeah, yeah, we we intro- so we introduced it at that point, and then we had a, a class that was uh, uh, their their last semester course, which which required it, which which was over a team team project class, and they had to uh, use it consistently throughout that course to track their changes, to do pull requests, and things like that. Yeah, we use I use a similar strategy in learning Rails five. I'm just looking through scaffolding is introduced in chapter five, but essentially you're sort of manually building a lot of the bits and pieces, and then scaffolding um, sort of wraps all that up for you. So similar to your strategy, you're saying of you know sort of experiencing the pain of doing things manually, and and then sort of introducing an easier way. Well, my my later teacher, on. my teaching mentor a long time ago suggested that. No, she 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 was sure this wasn't why they still do it, but she suggested it's a good learning approach. It's sort of like making you go through all that hassle of doing long division on paper and then finally mm-hmm. giving you a calculator to do it for you. Sure. <laughs> you you appreciate the calculator a lot more. Yeah. And the well, boot camp or the accelerated learning community, you know, Git is the first thing Git marked as first thing that you learn. Or is the Second, or you know, you're either supposed to know it before you get to class, or you're going to learn it within the first two weeks of class of sessions. So that's what a lot of the boot camps are around. To piggyback on some of the information, some of the things you guys said about learning, um, I think one thing that the lone developer needs to know is to find um, find a mentor, find someone that's you know willing to spend an hour or two a week with you. Just to you know, help pair programs, see what type of problems you're having. In our cohort, uh, Mark, he actually uh, he handles a lot of the uh, mentorships with our with Vetsuko. Like when someone applies to be a mentor, I usually interview them first, and I send them off to Mark, and Mark gives them the okay or the you know, basically the thumbs up or thumbs down. But we see in our in our students that the people who are talking to their mentors every week that our pair program 
programming with the mentors uh, every week, they usually come out to be the strongest, even in this uh, past cohort. The last two, um, the two strongest developers, when I look at their metrics for how many times they met up with their mentor, their mentor was incredibly busy. He was working with, um, he had, they both had the same mentor. He was basically putting four to six hours a weekend of mentoring and you know, they came out really strong, so strong that people were retweeting uh, their portfolios when they uh, when they were done. So I think that's something that everybody should, if you're especially if you're brand new, find somebody that's already made all the screw ups and all the mess ups that you haven't done yet. It's easy. I mean, there, that's the difference between wisdom and like intelligence is fine. If you're smart, if you find somebody who has already made, has the experience of how to screw this up before you and figure out like, all right, what not to do. And so. it's important. It, it's a, it's really important because those, those kinds of relationships can, can last, you know, they can last a lifetime. I mean, a mentor isn't just someone who tells you what to do and throws knowledge at you. They're, they're a person that as a result of them, as a result of them mentoring you, they're growing too. They're learning. They're looking at different ways to explain problems, things that they, things that they, they just kind of remember or know how to do. Now they have to internalize it and they have to break it down and they have to think about it and they have to make it clear. And sometimes, you know, speaking, speaking from the standpoint of, of a mentor who does mentor people, there's been a lot of times when I've realized that what I thought was right is actually not an optimal approach or the wrong approach or, or just flat out dangerous. And then forces me to grow, uh, in a way. So, you know, if you're, if you're out there looking and you're thinking, oh, that, that person is going to be too busy or they won't want to mentor me, it doesn't really hurt to ask because both of you get something out of that relationship. Well, and, you know, the, the other piece, the other piece I want to mention, too, is that it's not just the technical piece. It's the sort of professional career mentoring, too. Right. There's the technical piece of pair per programming and coding and doing that. But especially with vets who code, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of these folks are making a transition from a military background into the civilian world. And it's just a bit different. The networking piece is different. The people you meet, the uh, the interview prep, all those things are, you know, can be very different than what the military is. So the mentoring piece is not just the technical part, but also the pro- the professional and the personal uh, development part too. Also, just to piggyback on what I believe Brian said it best, mentoring is a rewarding two way street. So even if you, I mean, from your local user group or meetup group, whatever. If you if you're in a management role, please go out there and mentor someone that has no idea what they're doing, because especially in the Ruby community, uh, we we're pretty much getting this. Uh, we're getting a slack in which people feel like it's matured and it's basically the good old boys club. And if you didn't don't know how to use it now, then you're never going to be able you're not going to be able to use it. It's going to be a steeper uh, entry into being a Rails developer. Uh, you're even seeing that now with like some of the the way the the jobs are being written for Rails developers where they're asking for, I saw like five come on my desk this week where they're looking for entry-level developers with a year's worth of production experience. I was like, that's, that makes no sense. So if you're in, if you haven't mentored, go out there, mentor, find somebody that wants to learn or is struggling to learn or whoever at the local meetup has the biggest deer in the headlights look on them. That's the person you need to go and mentor because that's the person that's, you know, they're usually, they want to learn, they're eager to learn, they're intimidated, they're probably going to become better developers than the people that you tend to gravitate towards because they they feel like they don't belong and they're just so grateful for someone taking that opportunity 
and that chance with them that they are going, you tell them to do something, they are going to do it versus somebody yeah. who they've been gravitate, you know, they grab, gravitate towards them early and they're like, oh, you know, they're a cool kid or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, you know, we like this guy. So if he doesn't do what we tell him to do or doesn't follow that direction, you know, that's cool because still a cool guy, um, especially with the whole diversity and tech inclusion uh, movement that we're trying to push as a community or in regards to tech in the industry across the country. I mean, the bet is usually it's usually women, it's usually minorities who are going to these local meetups and they're feeling out of place. Uh, and that's something that you guys can more you know, better developers in the community can, you know, alleviate that problem. So that's, I guess, that's your homework for the week if you're hearing this podcast. If you see um, someone at your local meetup that definitely looks lost, go out there and say, hey. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I also just Sorry. wanted to point out that uh, if the qualifications for a mentor is having experience screwing stuff up, then I am overqualified. Yeah. Because uh, I'm super good at screwing stuff up. We've been talking for close to an hour. I'm kind of curious if there are any other aspects of learning Rails or teaching Rails that we should dive into. You know, just things that people don't think about when they're thinking, oh, I'm going to jump in and mentor somebody or, ooh, I think I'm going to learn this new framework. Uh, learn <laughs> or coffee script. I think that's one thing that, you know, like I think we, we have this running joke where, like I've said multiple times, many reason people learn Ruby is because they hate JavaScript. But especially like um, with what was said about Rails 5.1, that hate between JavaScript and Ruby is quickly eroding. They see that, you know, the people who are creating the Rails framework are seeing the usefulness and a lot of the things that are coming up in the a JavaScript framework and regard in JavaScript community in regards to Webpack and uh, Node and, and React, Angular. So it's best to you know go ahead and bite the bullet, learn learn JavaScript, learn CoffeeScript, uh, learn these technologies, so that way you can help make better Rails developers. Because we're not seeing in the market, we're not seeing people are just looking for pure Ruby as for pure Rails uh, developers. They're looking for uh, Rails developers that have uh, experience with Electron, Rails developers have experience with Angular, Rails developers with React. That's all, um, that's what the market is moving towards. So you have to be, you have to learn how to use these languages and these frameworks. So, and these libraries. So you might as well just go ahead and, you know, learn JavaScript as well. Yeah, I've been focusing on React. That's been the latest thing I've been trying to uh, spend more time with is React. And, you know, not just outside of this, just the general sort of making yourself more marketable. Back to the sort of teaching aspect, I think as teachers, we should be, if it's been six months or a year and you haven't been in an uncomfortable place with regard to learning goes, then I think as a, you know, whether you're a teacher or a mentor, you're, you're probably not doing your job. You should be in an uncomfortable place. So I've been in that for the last six weeks or so. I've been uh, going through various uh, React, React, specifically React and Rails uh, tutorials. They're sort of a standard way, or there's one or two standard way I've seen, standard ways I've seen that folks are, are, are doing it. So I've been in that uncomfortable place. And okay, I want to put this thing here on the page, but like if it was purely Rails, I know how I would do it, but I don't really know how to do it in, inside React. So I think that, that that's that's an important thing. Yeah, I, I, I love the uh, I love that that sentiment of 
making making sure that you're uh, you're uncomfortable every once in a while and, and pulling up a new technology. I, I've been I've been feeling the same kind of things you're feeling, but not with React, but with with Elm instead. And it's sort mm-hmm. of the same thing because it's 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 making me do a lot of. Uh, to make me rethink a, a, a many many years of experience uh, with programming, speaking completely completely uh, start over again, and it's sure. it's nice because because it it's uh, from a teaching standpoint and a mentoring standpoint, it puts you in the fr- in the same mindset as your students, and this yeah. is one yeah. of the one of the most difficult things that that people who who have good hearts and they they really want to teach and they really want to give back and they really want to mentor. One of the biggest mistakes that they make is they. Uh, when then they come into it is that they think that the way that you would write code at your day job is the way that everyone needs to learn how to do it. Sure. And what I mean by that is, is they'll say, oh, yeah, you're a new you're, you're new to Rails. Awesome. Here's all this cool stuff you should look at. And it just becomes incredibly overwhelming. <laughs> and sometimes sometimes, you know, the when when you're teaching something, you're not going to start out with complex examples. You're going to start with very simple examples. And I can't count the number of times where, whether it's been in a book or in a presentation that I've given, somebody has to point out, well, I, why would you ever do it that way? That's a horrible way to do it. And it's not a horrible way to do it. It's not how I would do it if I was writing the code for real. But it's a, it's, it's, you're only seeing part of the process. You're not seeing the full process. And, you know, really, and we got to get more complicated because they're simply not ready to do full on test first driven development with integration tests and functional tests. They're just not at that point yet. I think a lot of it. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just the way you approach it as a teacher from a standpoint of saying, listen, there, there are a thousand ways to do, do this. I'm going to show you one and it's the way that I, I do it, but just know that there are various, you know, that there are, you know, umpteen different ways to do it. I also think that has to come into play of, Teaching from the position of a learner versus teaching from the position of a worker. One of the things, like for instance, the when we or going back to I guess it's popular going back to JavaScript, the book that gets recommended the most is Eloquent JavaScript. Well, if you're a person that has absolutely no experience in JavaScript, that book absolutely is you know it's terrifying. So the book I started recommending was JS for Kids, and people were like, you're joking, right? But I was like, the guy that wrote this book was a developer at Twitter for the front end. So I think, you know, he knows what he's doing. The same thing with Ruby. Like a lot of people, the first book they recommend for Ruby is uh, Programming Ruby, the pickaxe. However, yeah. for me, I recommend that Shaw's uh, Learn Ruby the Hard Way and Head First Ruby before we uh, and that's just the third book I recommend after you know after people asking for resources, um, yeah. and it's because those books like you know a lot of people don't know Zed. Zed is an army veteran, and so it's basically as I like to say, is army proof, and uh, it's written really simple, almost like SOPs, and you can go through that of that book and you know really get a really good understanding with Ruby from the um, from the core concepts of the language. So that's something that a lot. I, th- I would like to see more authors and more creators come from that come from that perspective of like you're dealing with someone that has your experience and wants to learn, versus trying to show you know how how smart they are when they're writing their books. Because right. that's what I especially when I first started programming, that was one thing that kept um, me from liking certain authors or things of that nature. Just like you know what. 
this book was more written, I felt like it was more written for this person's ego than to actually teach me something. A yeah. guy who do great jobs like that um, with authors are doing stuff. Uh, Brian Holt, uh, Zed Shaw, Kyle Simpson, uh, Sandy Metz, they all do really good jobs in being able to teach, um, write, and write books and create material from the uh, perspective of someone who has no clue what they're doing versus other authors who the book is more just like I said, it's more, it feels more focused on letting me know that, you know, you're really good at this. So I think that is one thing that as teachers, we all, and I catch myself at that, in that uh, trap all the time where I'm forgetting uh, something that I, uh, I decided was common knowledge because I've used it so much, but then I have someone ask me like, well, what does that do? So, oh yeah, you didn't know that. I'm like, oh, I, can't, I shouldn't say that because as a teacher, you have to assume that the learner doesn't know anything. You have to put, you know, they have a, they are coming to you with that empty cup and it's your job to fill it. And you have to make sure that you don't, you don't spill a drop and forget to fill it with something that's essential. So I think that's something that as a community, when it comes to instruction, that's the hardest part of teaching and mentoring is coming from the position of the learner. And what does the learner, the new learner not know? When I first stepped foot in the classroom uh, full time, I had to be uh, observed by a faculty mentor and uh, some other some other uh, folks at the the professional development. And the the guy who ran professional development my first year of teaching used to have this saying that he would put on the note cards and he would say it during the during the in service and things that he would he would always point this out whenever we got off track. He would say, "Just a just a reminder." You are the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. You're not there to tell them everything, and you're not there to make everyone think that you're the coolest person up there. It's your job to guide someone to the to the solution, and and that that always stuck with me. And it always kind of was this way to keep me in check whenever I got off the path. Whenever I saw, you know, thought, oh, this is gonna be really cool. They're gonna love this, and that's what that's not really what they need. What they need is uh, they need to they need to the the path that's gonna help them be successful. Yeah, Boy Scouts calls this concept shadow leadership. And so essentially what it is is that the boys run the program and the adult leaders are there basically to make sure that they don't hurt themselves and that they have transportation and things like that, you know, and, and man, help manage the budget. But the boys run the program. And I think it's very similar here. If, if you're up there to try and, you know, make it the program what you want it to be, that's different from if you're in there and actually helping these people chart their own course. So one more question that I want to ask, because this is learning Rails 5. What if I'm a Rails 3 developer? How do I learn Rails 5? Is the approach the same, or are there just more things for me to learn? Interesting. I would say, yeah, I, I think the approach is probably generally the, the same. If you're, you know, if you're doing Rails 3 or Rails 4 now, you know, you can look at it as you've got a great, you've got a great head, head start. I think that in my mind, the questions you would start asking yourself is, okay, what, what areas do I want to dig deeper in? Am I, do I have, am I using a active job or something like that, that where I can use the out of the box tools? What, what, what are my mailers looking like? Is there something that I can, are there additions to the framework that have been added that I can start to use again, thinking about that, uh, that convention over configuration mentality, you know, are there conventions that, have become more standardized moving from, again, something like version three to ver version five. 
that I can begin to uh, to incorporate. I mean, I, I feel like one of the strengths of Rails, and it, this has been true for a, a decade or more now, is the, this convention over configuration men- mentality and this idea that as a Rails developer, I can clone a repository, I can clone a, a Rails app, and you know, within a relative short amount of time, I should be up and running and generally know that all the moving parts of this application and the way the reason that's been true is because uh, of you know the way things are built into the framework and the conventions that have been built in so now again things like action mailer and action cable and those things are sort of beginning to standardize those things so that would sort of be my advice for someone who is an existing rails developer but maybe on an older version of rails and i would say to look at you know, maybe not read through and dig down on the change logs that much, but whenever Rails releases a new version, they post on their blog kind of like the highlights of what was introduced in this release. And if you're coming from Rails 3, go back and look at the Rails 4 and the Rails 5, you know, the major releases to see what kind of new features were added in. And then just pinpoint on those features to, you know, do a bit more independent research on them to see what those new features are about, kind of why they were added in and how you could incorporate them into your application or use them as guiding tools to upgrade your uh, older Rails application to a more current version. All right. Anything else we should dig into before we go to picks? I have one more, if we could. I'm, I'm curious yeah. if uh, others have ideas about this. This idea of writing, I've got in um, uh, Chuck. You might, you, if you can include this, uh, I've got a Medium article that I wrote, and it's entitled Two Writing Assignments for New Pro- Programmers." One of the things I do in my class is I have I have two writing assignments that they do. One is on diversity in technology, and I have them read an article related to just diversity in, te- in technology and some of the challenges there. And then uh, I, I use, we use Moodle as the learning management system. So it's a, it's a forum assignment. I, I have them uh, post to a forum, you know, their, their thoughts. I pose some questions to, to them and have them post there. And then I also have them, I have another writing assignment that they, that they, they do, but I'm curious about, and, and, Part of that, a lot of the pushback, I've gotten some pushback from students that said, hey, I'm, I'm here to learn coding and per programming. I'm not here to learn writing, so why am I having to, to do this <laughs> assignment? And my, you know, my explanation is always that, again, part of being a de- developer is to be an effective communicator, uh, you know, not just in person, but also, you know, listen, the, the, there are more and more virtual and remote jobs. And even if you're in a, a, a physical location with other developers, you're going to be using lots of email. So that, that's my argument is that you need to be an effective communicator and, and an effective yeah. writer. Um, I, 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 folks thoughts. I agree wholeheartedly. People who were in my classes did a lot of writing, a lot of communicating. And I got a lot of the same pushback that, that you got. And my response was plainly that your, your job as a software developer is 20% code and 80% dealing with people and their problems and their issues and their requests and their desires. Yep. You, you have you have political things to deal with. You have emails to read and emails to write. You will make a mistake and have to write a postmortem at some point. It's a guarantee that there'll be some situation where you'll have to advocate for a belief or an idea that you have. Um, maybe that's in written form or maybe that's from a public speaking at a, during a meeting. You have to be prepared for those. And I always put put it on me as it is my responsibility as your instructor to prepare you 
uh, for all of those scenarios, not just the ones where you're given a specification and need to turn it into code. So that's how I always handle it. And that's, I still firmly believe that the best software developers that I know, the most successful software developers that I know are people who are great software developers who also are, are great with, with the written word. I think DHH has a great post on signal noise. Chuck, I may dig that up. You can include that in the show notes too mm-hmm. on, on writing and why it's important and why they only hire. He's, I think DHH is sort of, uh, posing it from a standpoint of hiring new de- developers, but why they why writing is important and communicating is important for the software developers that that Thirty Seven Signals hires. I'm assuming that your school had a a committee or so of of people in the industry, right? That that advises your program on what to include. Right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. And most most of the schools have that. We always ask, you know, what are the most important skills you want our our students to have? And and the the top three were all were all what you well, what some people call soft skills. I just think of them as skills because they're is important. There was always it was always uh, you know communication, uh, work ethic, and, and things like that. You know the, the uh, uh, you know of course being able to solve problems and show up was important. But you know learning you know knowing specific programming language X was much much farther down the list than be a good communicator. And I don't want to, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I going to say, if you can't do right, if you can't do all the, if you can't show up to work on time and communicate with your co- colleagues, then none of, none of the other technical <laughs> skills matter. However, that being said, and I'm sure Jerome can speak to this, you know, hiring, you know, when you still look at uh, requirements for job requirements, it's all technical. And if you can't sort of pass that technical hurdle, then you never get a chance to, you know, talk about more soft skills so that that's just that's the reality of work i do want to push back on that just a tiny bit because the 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 test there (laughs) that's a negative for me like uh no writing is communication is like the number one thing that employers are looking for dhh actually came into our slack channel and did an ama with our veterans and he told them that writing trumps uh, your ability to communicate Trump's language you're learning uh, 10 to 1. He'll hire a mediocre programmer with better communicating skills than a rock star programmer who uh, communicates like with has the communication skills of a rock uh, 10 mm-hmm. times to 1. So I am very much against the idea of like, you know, that's usually like how when people ask, they want great communicators before the programmers. They'll take a chance on a guy, on a guy or a girl or on a troop that is a that can communicate well. That's why we make our troops write so much. Okay. No, that that's encouraging to 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 hear. And I like you know. So the reason I mentioned that is I see a lot, especially for remote jobs, is they have these blind committees, and you've got this you know crazy. I had one student I was mentoring, and he was sort of lamenting to me that the technical challenges, the work sample that they had to do up front before he even got an interview and had to do anything, was so focused on those technical challenges that that was sort of one of the frustrations he had. Well, we give those, I mean, where, where I currently work now, we, we give those kinds of, those kinds of things out, but you know, the job description might not say, might not say anything about those kinds of communication skills and whatnot, mm-hmm. but I guarantee you we're testing for them from the second you, uh, you, you hit that application button. Sure. We're looking at your cover letter. We're looking at how you communicate with, how many, how you communicate with your skills on your resume and your cover letter. And in your, and in your your conversations, your email conversation with the mm-hmm. with the hiring manager or the recruiting manager, or whoever, the, your communication skills are being assessed continuously through the interview process. Uh, yeah, you're going to write some code, and it's going it's going to feel 
like you're you're focused you're focusing on the technical stuff when you're doing the homework assignment. But I'll I'll tell you right now, if you turn the homework assignment back in and you say, here it is, yeah, we're gonna evaluate you on your, you know, every company will evaluate you on your communication skills at that point. Like why not why not take a few moments to summarize your experience with it and talk sure. about you know what you encountered that's the kind of stuff that that it's it's done it's done as a filter because a lot of these positions have you know hundreds of hundreds upon hundreds of applicants just for one or two open positions there's got to be a way to filter people out quickly and that tends to be the easiest way well, that, that's encouraging to hear because just for every person like my student who was complaining about that, there's probably people who they may not be voicing it, but they're great technically and they had a great work sample, but they, they didn't get a call back for a, a uh, you know, a second or third interview because, because of poor communication skills. Yep. Well, this is a whole episode or three that we could do on, mm. on just this topic. <laughs> and, and I tell people this too. It's, it's, yeah, you know, they're evaluating as much for fit as they are for, you know, technical skill. Uh, once they know tell, you can solve the problem, yeah, then they want to know that you can work well with their team. Yeah, that's what we tell our students. They're looking for the person who can do the who can do the job. The first person who can do the job they like the most. Uh, you got to understand, people are spending they're going to be spending more time with you than their families, so they don't want a person they don't want to push out of a window. So, like, keep that in mind and be be show your personality. Let them know that you know don't show don't go full full as we like to say, but Show people that you know they're going to enjoy working with you. Try to put yourself in the in the role of their coworker. Try to put that in their mind early on. Like see how they, your process of how to solve problems and how it will benefit them and alleviate some of the problems that they're having. That's what you're there for. So that's something. And the last thing I want to say is with being in the professional world as a developer. I talk to non-developers more often than not. You know, rather than the team that I work with on a day-to-day basis, I have to talk with uh, QA people, with project managers, scrum masters, and uh, support people, implementation people. So it's very important to have that communication skill. If I cannot convey an issue or convey a proposed solution to a problem that they can understand, then we will implement and develop the wrong thing. You know, if I can't get out of these people what they're envisioning, then we're going to develop the wrong thing. So a communication, you know, is extremely important to have that good skill set. You know, and a lot of times I'll speak to my wife and try to convey a programming idea to someone who is completely not tech savvy uh, you know, she has trouble turning on the Apple TV sometimes. So I will try to communicate a programming concept to her with analogies or something that she can understand. And that helps me on a daily basis to practice my communication skills to someone who is not tech savvy to communicate an idea to where they can understand and then have a conversation on. We call that folly, folly Fridays at my house. I pick a subject <laughs> and I try to explain it to my 13-year-old in a way that he can understand. And mind you, he's a 13-year-old, so he doesn't care anything that has to <laughs> So it's a very fun experience for me. But yeah, let, let's go ahead and do some, some picks. I think there's some great information in here for people who want to learn or level up on Rails. 
This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. I just have one. It's called Groovebox. It's a theme for your editor or your uh, IDE. And it's very easy on the eyes. Uh, I have bad eyesight. So when I'm staring at the dark glow of my computers at night, having a um, gentle on the eyes theme is uh, very nice. And it's G-R-U-V-B-O-X. Nice. Brian, what are your picks? I have two picks this week. The first one is, since we've been talking about writing. Uh, one of the things we never really get to cover is, well, how do you, maybe you don't have those kinds of skills. How how do you get those kinds of skills? And just like with software development, you can develop those skills through practicing. But there is a good guide uh, that you can, you can get called Keys to Great Writing. It's a book by Stephen Wilbers. I highly recommend it because it, it talks about uh, grammar rules, revision strategies, and really walks you through how to find your voice. I've gotten copies of this book for lots of, lots of different people. Uh, and I, I strongly recommend it. So if you if you're looking for ways to help level up those skills, that'd be a good place to to look. And the other pick I have is Rails, and not the Rails that includes every gem under the sun, but Rails. Uh, the last two projects I've worked on with Rails, I decided to just constrain myself to using using whatever comes stock with Rails. So what that means is I've, I've sort of thrown out I've thrown out RSpec and, and Cucumber, and I decided just just what's what's the stock testing you know mini uh, mini test I started just using that uh, because I encountered several situations in the past where I kind of gone with a crowd had gone and then got stuck doing Rails upgrades and I spent a lot of time with with the test so so a year ago I sort of resolved on these new projects to. Uh, to do this, uh, to stay with just, you know, what's in the tin. And I've got to say, uh, here a year later, I'm upgrading these applications to Rails 5.1, and it, the process has just been so smooth. And I'm not saying I'm not using any gems. Like, I'm using Devise because who wants to write their authentication stuff, stuff from scratch? Uh, but the rest of it has been incredibly nice. It's been simpler to reason about. And so that's why I'm sort of having the just use the default rail stack renaissance over here. So that's my other pick. Awesome. Jerome, what are your picks? 
Roger that. I only have two picks today. Uh, my first pick is going to be a Medium article that I'm sharing about uh, Rails 5.1 loves JavaScript. Uh, piggybacking on what I said earlier in the uh, cohort about what about that about being able to use more JavaScript with Rails. So that is one my first pick. Second pick is HackerRank. They have a really good uh, Ruby track that I think those who are well, I'm concerned with the idea of getting more into Ruby and learning, getting a deeper dive into Ruby uh, to become better Rails developers. Um, I highly recommend this free, uh, something that you should definitely um, do if you haven't done a deep dive into Ruby in, in quite a bit. All right. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks myself. Uh, the first one is I was kind of laid up for a couple days last week. And, and so I wound up uh, basically watching some shows and uh, doing, playing some games. And, uh, I picked up a couple of games that I'm kind of enjoying. Uh, one of them is called Clash Castle, I think, or Castle Clash. Anyway, it's kind of like Clash of Clans. If you played that a uh, little bit different gameplay mechanisms and stuff, but I'm enjoying that. Um, and then another one is Mobile Strike, which is, uh, if you've played Game of War, it's like that, except it's a lot simpler in a lot of ways. And so I'm enjoying that as well. Um, I also really wanted to shout out about and pick something that Brian uh, has worked on for years. I found out when I interviewed him for my Ruby story, and that is RailsMentors.org. Um, so if you're out there looking for a mentor, or you want to mentor people, um, that is a terrific resource, and I'm, I'm going to recommend that as well. Um, and then finally, just a quick reminder to go check out RubyDevSummit.com. Um, it's free. It's online. So... You know, as long as you can get on the internet when the talks are going, you can watch them. If you want the recordings, you want to be in the Slack channel and stuff, you have to pay for that. But if you want to just participate and watch and, you know, have kind of the, the in-webinar Slack or chat, not the Slack, but just chat, then uh, you can get in for free. You just go in and you enter your email address and it gets you access to all that stuff. Mark, what are your picks? So my picks are, uh, I've got a few picks. So real quick, my technical pick is... Uh, Grammarly, I think, is what it is for. Uh, it's a Chrome plugin. It's great for us people who are are, are, are challenged by spelling and um, you know we were discussing writing. So it's a just it's a great tool for for that. I, I I've been using the free version for a few months now, and it's great. It's it's improved my emails by orders of ma magnitude. So that's one pick. My book pick is the history of Pi, and it's uh, Beckman. I, I guess is the guy's last name, Peter. Beckman, sort of old school book. I think it was first published in 1971. Uh, it's just a fun little book. If you never, you, you, your, your local library probably has a copy of it. Stop by and you can probably read it in a couple of sittings, but I, I st still come back to it from time to time and read various chapters from it. And then I think Avdi used to do beer picks, so I think I'll do a beer pick, and that'll be uh, Sierra Nevada's uh, West Coast Stout. If you like a, 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 dark, a dark beer, that's my recommendation. Awesome. And if people want to follow up on this episode with you or just follow you on Twitter, see what you're doing on GitHub, where, where do they go? At Mark Locklear. That's sort of the home of uh, everything Mark Locklear. I've got a link to my website there, locklear.me. But yeah, please uh, follow me and uh, just say, say hi if you like on Twitter. Is that the first pick we ever had that was a beer? Like, Abdi used to do. No, I'm pretty yeah. sure Abdi used to do beer picks all all the time, right? Okay. Yeah, I was like, I was like, is that an achievement unlocked? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he he picked quite a few of them. Awesome. Okay, I'm gonna start 
like picking random food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David Brady was trying to do hot sauces too for a while there. So that's a that's a good one. Hot sauce is a great one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Mark. We'll go ahead. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure being here. I've been a, a long-time listener, so it's so, sort of a kick for, for me to, to be able to actually be on as a guest. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap this one up, and we'll catch everyone next week. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.